Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 and beginning our reading at verse 32. This is on page 851. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came uh, the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Sometimes uh, we are very aware of the fact that there's more going on than what meets the eye. Uh, There can be the event itself but there can be all kinds of meaning uh, embedded in the event that uh, we need to appreciate as well. And as we've been coming to the end of Mark's gospel, we've been highlighting how much of Mark's gospel is actually devoted uh, to the end of Jesus's life. Uh, It is wrapped around the events surrounding his death. And there is a reason for that because to understand the life of Jesus, to understand the person of Jesus, we need to uh, appreciate Uh, his death and why Jesus died. And you remember that as we have been looking at this, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus has mentioned that he would be betrayed, that he would be handed over, and ultimately that he predicted he would be put to death. And what is being told to us here is how Jesus is going to be arrested that he was conscious uh, that a betrayer was in their midst. One of the twelve would betray him. Jesus took steps to make sure that he was not betrayed before he had the opportunity to celebrate the Passover. But now we're uh, ultimately coming to a point where we see how it is that Jesus is arrested, that it's going to be Judas that comes with his band of uh, men and arrests and seizes Jesus in the night. And it's ultimately going to be because Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Uh, 
a place where in John 18, it tells us Jesus oftentimes went with his disciples. And so Judas knows that this is a rendezvous point. This is a place where Jesus often went. And so he knows how to intercede, how it is that he can capture Jesus. And Mark's gospel is telling us that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to pray. But there's more going on here than simply saying, how is it that Jesus and Judas came together? How is it that, that Jesus was arrested? What led up to that event happening? Because as Mark is stepping back here, he's telling us not just that Jesus prayed, but he's telling us what Jesus prayed. And this morning, as we're turning back to Mark's gospel, we want to see this prayer in the garden. We want to contemplate Gethsemane uh, in all its darkness in order to appreciate what Jesus is doing, in order to appreciate the person of Jesus himself. And so we want to see this prayer as really one about the submission to the will of God and how Jesus is willing to do the will of the Father uh, in spite of all that it means. We want to think about this prayer in three thoughts. Uh, we want to think about the sorrow that characterizes Jesus. Then secondly, we want to think about the supplication uh, of Jesus, meaning by that what Jesus is asking for in this prayer. And then finally, we want to think about Jesus' submission. After he asks the Father, he ultimately submits to the Father. Well, first, uh, we see in these verses here uh, Jesus' sorrow. It says that they came to a place called Gethsemane. Uh, after Jesus celebrated the Passover and the nighttime with his disciples, it tells us that uh, he went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, the Mount of Olives is on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. And uh, the Mount of Olives actually stands above uh, the city and above the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. Uh, but between the city of Jerusalem uh, and the Mount of Olives is a valley, uh, which is known as the Kidron Valley. Uh, the plain actually descends down. And so after the Passover feast in the nighttime, Jesus is moving with his disciples down into the depths of the Kidron Valley. And ultimately, he is moving his way towards the Mount of Olives. But as he makes his way into this region, into this area, a new development is uh, taking place here. Because at this point, uh, it tells us Jesus uh, becomes uh, greatly distressed. He becomes filled with sorrow uh, and he wants to pray uh, as well. And so uh, as we're looking at this, we see his, his troubled uh, soul uh, uh, being highlighted. You see that being highlighted in the statement that Jesus makes there in verse uh, 34. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Um, we saw an echo of that in Psalm 42, didn't we? Uh, why are you disturbed in me? Why are you so troubled? Uh, the psalmist was greatly agitated about things and it disturbed him. Uh, but that was a faint echo of what Jesus is describing here. Because here Jesus describes his agony, his anguish, as unto death, which you can understand in one of two ways. Either Jesus is saying that the agony that he is experiencing is as strong as death, that it is as powerful as death, 
Or you can understand that Jesus is saying that his agony accompanies him unto death. That this is, this is his experience now as he is moving towards death. But in either case, Jesus is he's sharing with his disciples here something of what is going on inside. There is an anguish that he's not shielding others from. He's actually sharing that with his disciples. He's looking for comforters in what he's going through. And so rather than withdraw from others, he's actually searching for support as he is experiencing this agony. But his sorrow is not just there in the statement that he makes. His sorrow is also seen in the fact that he is, he's calling on his disciples to support him. You notice there that he tells Peter, James, and John uh, to, to remain here and to watch while he goes and prays. It might seem odd to us to think, why would he want Peter, James, and John to just come and remain here while he goes off a little further to pray? But Jesus here is calling on these three men. These are the same three men who all said very confidently that they would stand with Jesus in difficulties, that they were willing to take the cup that he would take, that Peter said that he would go with Jesus unto death. And now Jesus is telling them that he is facing a difficult situation. And now he is calling them to stand with him. And so by calling Peter, James, and John to come and to watch with him, he is reminding them of the difficulty that he is now facing. And he is calling on them to be vigilant, uh, to be alert, not just to stay awake, but to realize that there is a danger looming that they need to be prepared for. And that the danger or the difficulty that Jesus is facing is one that they are wrapped up in as well. And they need to be vigilant. They need to be on guard because of what is coming. They need to be prepared. So Jesus' sorrow is it's highlighted here by the fact that he's sharing this with his disciples. I am in great anguish. It is an, an agony that is unto death. He's calling on his associates to be with him in his time of prayer. That they're watching as he prays. But they're on alert as well. That there's something happening that is, that is bigger than they realize. But his sorrow is also highlighted by the fact of his action there in verse 35. It says, in going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. This is the only occasion in the Gospels where Jesus finds himself prostrating. This is Jesus down on the depths, lying prostrate as he's praying unto his God and Father. There's, there's a, an intensity in this prayer that characterizes what Jesus is going through. How are we to think about this prayer, though? A couple of things seem to emerge even as we think about what is happening here. One thing that seems to emerge from this is the historicity of it. That what we're dealing with here has all the markings of being historical. That when we think about here, up until this point, as we've been following the life of Jesus, we've seen a man who has shown composure. We've seen a man who has always been in control. A man who's been able to do miracles. 
a man who's walked on waters, a man who has cast out demons. We've seen a man who is not afraid to challenge the religious authorities. We've seen a man that seems to be in control, knowing what is going to happen before it happens. There is a composure and a certain image that is being shaped about Jesus. And then we come to this scene here that challenges or that, that uh, upsets that, that notion or it expands that notion of how we understand Jesus. Because this man who was so composed and so in control now seems to be in agony about what he's facing with. That things seem to be big upon him and threatening to him. And so as one person has said, the grim realism of Gethsemane is a guarantee of its historicity. We're seeing a man who seems, almost we could say with reverence, paralyzed by a situation. That what's happening here is a threat to him. And that should really cause us to ask a second thing, which is, why is Jesus agonizing like this? What is causing Jesus such sorrow? Why is he so troubled in his soul? And the only satisfying answer to this goes much beyond death. Many people have faced death with no fear. Many people have faced death as simply a way of escape from suffering. Many people face death as simply an inevitable end. You just have to accept it. Death is an inevitability of life, and it meets with no reaction. It's just normal. You think on top of that, how Jesus himself, during his earthly teachings, taught people, he taught his disciples, do not fear those who can destroy the body. Jesus was teaching his followers not to fear death, not to fear persecution. Death is not the worst thing that could happen, Jesus was saying. And Jesus himself even predicted that when he went to Jerusalem, he would be betrayed and ultimately condemned to death, that Jesus would die in Jerusalem. And then he went to Jerusalem. And so when we think about the question, why is Jesus so troubled in his soul right now? In light of the fact that many people have faced death with so much more composure than what we're seeing here, when you think about the fact that Jesus himself said that death is not the worst thing that can happen. And when Jesus himself said, I know it's going to happen in Jerusalem. What accounts for the change in the composure of Jesus at this point where now he's in such agony that he compares it to death itself? The only satisfying answer is, is that Jesus is facing more than death. That Jesus recognizes and perceives more than just the cessation of physical life that is upon him. That he sees wrapped up in what is coming upon him a dark cloud of God's judgment. And Jesus in his soul is recoiling at that. Because more is going on than simply the risk of coming to the end of his life. And so his sorrow is one of his soul. 
And that is borne out even in what he prays. We see in his supplications uh, then a prayer that is consumed with a, a, a sense of God's judgment. In his prayer there in verse 36, it says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Prayer is not easy. Uh, prayer is not easy because it is taking our needs and offering them to God. It is asking God with help, with our needs. We are bringing our, our concerns and we're asking God to help us. But what makes prayer so hard is, is that we are asserting the authority of God, the ability of God, the power of God. You can do something about this. But it's also an act of submission to the authority of God. You have the ability to change this. And I'm submitting to your will with this. And that's a hard thing to do. But you see here in Jesus' prayer, we see both of those things coming to fruition. All things are possible with you. If it is possible, remove this cup. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Though That's the heartbeat of what true prayer is. It is acknowledging something about God and entrusting or submitting, ultimately, our needs and our concerns with him. And here Jesus is asking God uh, to remove uh, this, uh, this scenario that he finds himself in. And he describes it in two ways. He describes it as the hour. Um, the hour is approaching. His whole life has been revolving and directing itself towards this moment. Sometimes you young people, you talk uh, in this way, uh, uh, what hour are they coming over to our place? You're wondering when is the time that your friends or company is coming to visit? Uh, everything is leading up to this moment. And here Jesus is talking about the hour that has been appointed for him. The hour of his glory, but also the hour of his suffering as well. And now as it draws near, uh, there is a desperate request that if possible, it might pass from him. That if there's another way to accomplish God's will, uh, uh, Jesus is asking for that uh, to be done. But he becomes more explicit as he asks this prayer. In verse 36, he says, uh, remove this cup from me. A cup uh, is, it is speaking here about what has been allotted to him. Whatever you drink, the, the effect of it depends on what is inside that cup. If someone gives you a, a drink of juice or a drink of water, it'll, it'll satisfy the taste. It'll refresh your body. But if you had a cup full of poison, it'll kill you. So what you drink depends on what is being given to us. And in scripture, we see a cup, the picture of a cup oftentimes used to describe what God has allotted to people. There is a cup of blessing that God has given and uh, apportioned his blessing to his people. But oftentimes the scriptures speak about the cup of God's judgment. 
And that's how the prophets would speak. Jeremiah 25 says, The Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among, among them. Jesus talked throughout his ministry about a cup. There is a cup that is waiting me. The, the Lord has apportioned something for me. And as Jesus is making this prayer here, it is an, an awareness that it is a cup of judgment that awaits him. That, that what he is going to experience is the cup of God's wrath. Already Jesus identified himself as the, the Passover lamb. That he is the one who will lay down his life and that the effect will be that it'll bring deliverance from the judgment for others. He'll shield others from the judgment of God. But now as he speaks about the cup of wrath, he's, he's highlighting that there's more to being the Lamb of God than simply dying. That being the Lamb of God means receiving the full brunt of God's wrath. That he will be the recipient of God's judgment. And so here he is praying that the Father would remove this cup uh, if it would be his will. Now the notion that God will judge sin and that God will judge this world uh, is something that is frowned upon uh, commonly in our world today. We don't want to think about God judging or punishing wickedness. Uh, we want to think that God is a God who only is tolerant and accepting. But the scriptures are clear that God will punish wickedness. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it that we are so offended at the thought that God would punish wickedness? Unless it's because we are trying to suppress the problem itself. Why would it offend us unless we ourselves recognize that we're guilty before God? Why would it offend us to think that God will deal with evil and establish righteousness unless we see ourselves in the wrong side of the camp? And so here, as Jesus is talking about the reality of God's judgment, it should force us to remember and to realize that God is a God who judges sin. That God is a God who will deal uh, with all sin. As we were thinking about even this morning in our catechism class, all sin will be punished. It's either dealt with at the cross or it's dealt with on the judgment day. And so here Jesus is praying uh, that if it be possible, that it would be removed from him. Uh, and so all of this, uh, Jesus is uh, acknowledging the authority of God. He's acknowledging uh, um, God's uh, rule over all things. But ultimately, uh, it is one that uh, he has to submit to himself. And so we see a movement here from the sorrow of Jesus over what is looming ahead of him. Uh, his supplication that if it be possible that this cup be removed from him. But ultimately we see a yielding uh, and a submission of Jesus by saying, yet not what I will, but what you will. The natural heart, in our natural hearts, we want our own will to be done. Our natural disposition is my will be done. Because if my will is done, then I feel safe. If my will is done, then I'm in control. 
If my will is done, then there's no danger. And yet here is Jesus submitting to his father because he knows his father. That's the difference. The reason why we want our own will to be done is because we're suspicious of God's will. The reason why we want our own will to be done is because we don't trust another. The reason why Jesus can submit here is because he knows his father. This is the only occurrence in the Gospels of Jesus using the language of Abba. Maybe you've heard over the years what Abba means. It's the language of intimacy. It's the language of trust. But it's not childish. It is one of closeness as a father to a son. An intimacy of respect. And as Jesus uses this language, it is language that is without parallel in any Jewish literature. Jesus knows God. And so he's willing to submit to his will. Even when he knows the will of the Lord is to crush the servant of the Lord. As it says in Isaiah. Jesus submits to the plan of God because he knows it's right and it's good. One person has said that in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted by Satan, by the kingdoms of this world. But here in Gethsemane, Jesus is being tempted by Satan as to whether it's worth it, what he's going to do, the cost of his love. And you see here Jesus is clinging to what he knows about his father, Abba, Father. Not my will, but your will be done. What he knows, he knows about God. What he submits to is the will of God, because it's right and good and true. And so Jesus here presents himself ultimately where naturally and instinctively we would recoil. One German preacher from the 19th century, Frederick Krumacher, says this, The voice which resounded through the Garden of Eden at the beginning of time cried, Adam, where are you? But Adam hid himself, trembling behind the trees of the garden. That same voice with a similar intention is heard in the Garden of Gethsemane. The second Adam, however, does not withdraw from it, but proceeds to meet the high and lofty one who summons him before him, resolutely exclaiming, here am I. As the darkness sets in, Jesus does not hide. Adam, when he rebelled, he said, my will be done, because he denied that the will of God was good. And then he hid. Jesus, as he stands in the darkness, was willing to say the will of God is right. And so he submits and presents himself to the Father saying, here I am, to do your will. There's a submission on his part, knowing that it is right. What Adam denied and what we so often doubt is the will of God. And yet Jesus takes uh, and is willing to take uh, the cup of wrath 
because he sees what it accomplishes, knowing from whom it is given, ultimately. So Jesus uh, um, does what we wouldn't do in our sinful nature, uh, and he ultimately submits uh, to the Father's will. But the outcome, the result of that, is, is that it is to bring the salvation from sin. It is to bring deliverance from guilt. But more than that, it is to bring, it is to bring knowledge of God. How can I submit to the will of God? How can I trust God until I know him? How can you know God until he shows you himself? And Jesus is the one who reveals the Father to us. And so while this is the only occurrence in the Gospels of the language of the Aramaic, Abba, as you read on in the New Testament, you find that the Christian church takes up that Aramaic expression and begins to speak in the same way. That through one spirit, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can address our God as Abba. That there is a sense of intimacy and trust because we know the will of God is good. The will of God is to bring about the salvation from sin. And it was accomplished through the, the punishing of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the wisdom of God at work here because he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that those who were unrighteous might become righteous in him. We see how God's justice is upheld, but also how God's mercy is extended. And we begin to marvel at God's revelation of himself as not only judge and ruler, but as a defender of his people. A God who shows mercy to those who have sinned. And we come to know God as Jesus is showing us who he is. As Jesus is willing to submit to the will of God himself. Even when it means being crushed himself in judgment. And so we see his submission uh, to the will of God. And that is ultimately borne out in the life of a believer. When the Spirit of God works in a person's life, if the Spirit of God is working in your life, you begin to see parallels here. There begins a sorrow in the life of a person because they see sin not just as a transgressing of a certain rule, a certain line of order, but they see it as an attack against God, and that grieves them. They begin to be agitated, unsettled. This is not the way things ought to be. I shouldn't be like that. There's something wrong with me. There's sorrow. But then there also moves this supplication, a recognition that I need God's help. I need God's mercy. There's a turning to God and asking God to do what I can't do myself. But then there's also a submission to receive the one that is given to us by the Father. That the Lord Jesus is the Savior that has been appointed for sinners. And so we yield to that. We receive it, submitting that this is the wisdom of God. This is the will of God for our salvation. And so uh, we see these uh, three uh, aspects being worked out in the life of a sinner uh, where the Spirit of God is at work. So there's a submission to the Lord's will. Uh, and there's a submission ultimately uh, to the Lord's wrath as well. 
Jesus goes back and forth. His disciples are sleeping, uh, not just because of the lateness of the night, but ultimately because they don't sense a danger. And Jesus keeps going back to them, uh, urging them uh, to be on alert, to be on guard, that there is a danger, but they themselves uh, cannot stay awake. Ultimately, we see in verse 42 that when he comes back to them, he tells them, uh, it is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. When Jesus comes back to them, he says it is enough. And here we see a settled resolution that Jesus has accepted the cup of wrath. That from this point on, there is no more shaking about what he is to do. It is clear to him that it is the will of the Father not to withhold the cup. And so he yields to it and takes it. But more than that, notice that when Jesus comes back, he tells them, uh, uh, rise, let us be going. In other words, Jesus isn't waiting. Jesus is going to Judas. He's going to meet Judas because he is actively doing the will of the Father. He is going to accomplish the work that has been set out for him. Jesus is willing to take the cup of judgment stored up in the place of sinners so that we might taste the goodness of God. He takes the cup of wrath so that we can celebrate regularly with the cup of blessing. That's what the Lord's Supper is reminding us of, that we are blessed who trust in Christ, ultimately because he was punished in the place of sinners. And so it all boils back to, as we think about the arrest of Jesus, he goes to the Mount of Olives, a place where he often went. He went there to pray. But it's important to know what he's praying about. He's praying about the will of God. He's praying about, if it be possible, that it be spared. The answer is, it's not possible. And so he yields, and he receives that cup. He submits to the will of God, ultimately to bring salvation. And when we see this, then we too can submit to the will of God. We can see that God is worthy of our trust. And it shatters the idea of living by our own will. Living by your own will will not establish what you want. It will not bring the safety you desire, the control that you crave. Rather, it is living under the will of God that brings redemption from sin. And we can have comfort because he's in control. He has all authority. He has all ability. And we can have comfort because he's gracious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about the experience of Jesus in the garden, we pray, Lord, that it would impress itself upon us, that there was an experience uh, of more uh, than simply the prospect of death that Jesus was wrestling with. And we thank you, Lord, that he yielded uh, not uh, uh, to his own will, but to your will. And we pray, Lord, that we would be people who celebrate and give thanks that the will of God is to bring about the salvation of sinners. Lord, we confess that it is hard uh, to, uh, to trust. 
And we pray, Lord, that we would see this even as uh, an aspect of our corruption. But we pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would cause us to come to a discovery of your goodness and of your grace. We ask for these things in Jesus' name.